Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Did you know you can say the exact same thing, but depending on the audience, it can mean something different? For instance, if I go up to one of you husbands after church and say, I cannot believe a fine-looking woman like your wife married a gorilla like you, that man will puff out his chest and get all self-deprecating and say, I know, I, I sure married up, didn't I? Now, I've made that man's day. He may even take his wife to Taco Bell after church. <laughs> but you can't say that to a woman. If I go up to one of the ladies and say, it is beyond me. While your hunk of a husband married an ugly skank like you, that woman will cry for two solid weeks and ain't nobody going to Taco Bell. Well, like that, in our sermon today, people are going to say the same thing about Jesus. But depending on your understanding of him, it will mean two different things. They will say Jesus was a good man. But depending on your understanding of who he really was, if he was just a man, he was anything but good. I know it sounds heretical to say that Jesus wasn't a good man, but stick with me and I'll explain it later. Just know that everyone has an opinion of who Jesus is, and so everyone has to choose what they believe. And that includes what they believe about the God-man, Jesus Christ. We'll be looking at this the next couple weeks. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? How we answer that question will not only be the determining factor of how we live life down here, but it also will determine where we spend eternity. As I said last time, you cannot be neutral on this. To not choose is a choice against him. Everyone must answer three questions regardless of their worldview. It doesn't matter whether you're an atheist, a Satanist, or a Baptist. They are the questions of ancestry, morality, and destiny. Everyone must answer the question of ancestry. Where did we come from? Morality, how do we behave now that we are here? And destiny, what happens after we die? Does Jesus have the answers to those questions? I hope to show that indeed he does in the next couple of sermons. Look at verse 8 with me. You go up to this feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. If you recall from last time, Jesus' brothers had challenged him to reveal himself as the Messiah at the feast. They were basically daring him to do it. That sounds just like brothers, doesn't it? I dare you, nay, double dog dare you. I mean, you have to do it then regardless, right? But Jesus had told them that his time had not yet arrived. Yet they could do whatever they wanted because their time was always right. Unlike Jesus, they would face no hostility at Jerusalem from the Jewish authorities. 
The world could not hate them since they were part of the world and the world loves its own. But the world, as Jesus reminded his brothers, hates me because I testify against it that its deeds are evil. Since the world is controlled by Satan, the activities and priorities of the world are inherently sinful. And so, when believers testify against the world and confront its wickedness, like Jesus did, they will arouse its antagonism and its hatred. You can go to Jerusalem anytime you want, Jesus said to his brothers. You can fit in. You have no reason to fear. But because they hate me, I must walk wisely. Jesus did, however, end up going to Jerusalem. The question we must ask ourselves is, why did he go if the Jews were out to kill him? Why did he go if he couldn't fit into that scene? Because in Deuteronomy 16, 16, God commanded him as a Jewish male to go. Therefore, even though it might, have, it might not have been prudent for Jesus to go, prudence bowed to obedience as he submitted to his father. What does that mean for us this morning? It means that while I am to walk wisely and watchfully, not looking for confrontation, not endangering myself or others, or going where it's dark, the Word of God has ultimate priority over my own understanding. How I thank the Lord that His Word doesn't change from day to day, month to month, and year to year, that it is immutable, timeless, and practical, that it needs no supplements, updates, or changes. I think sometimes we who come week after month after year to hear God's word begin to perhaps take for granted the profundity of the truth that has been given to us. Jesus knew the word completely, thus fulfilling the law perfectly. He went to Jerusalem secretly. By delaying his departure until after his brothers had gone up to the feast, Jesus was able to go to Jerusalem not publicly but as it were in secret. The Lord's caution is in marked contrast to the course of his brothers that they had urged him to take. And to them, it was inconsistent with him being the Messiah. He simply didn't want to accompany his arrogant brothers who could have used his attendance to advance their own agenda. Indeed, Jesus would journey more discreetly with his disciples and then address the Judeans in the time and manner of his own choosing. In our Lord's actions, we see a beautiful illustration of both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The father had a plan for his son, and nothing could spoil that plan. But Jesus did not tempt the father by rushing to the feast, nor did he lag behind when the proper time had come for him to go to the feast. That teaches me that it requires spiritual discernment to know God's timing. As this account in John's Gospel illustrates, Jesus followed God's timetable perfectly. He always performed God's will exactly as the Father wished. Those who are true followers of Christ also have the ability to follow God's revealed will because they have been given both His Word 
and his spirit. And we need both. Why would I say that? His word informs believers as to what his will is, while his spirit empowers them to obey that will in gladness. Trying to live the Christian life just in the power of our own flesh is a recipe for discouragement and failure. I often tell people it's the difference between driving your car or pushing it everywhere you go. Verse 11, please. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Verse 12 tells us there was much complaining among the people concerning Jesus. That gives me a great deal of comfort. Why would I say that? Well, Jesus was absolutely sinless and perfect in all of his dealings with every person. Not only did he never sin against them, he never even sinned internally with sinful attitudes towards them. But guess what? People still found reasons to complain about who he was and what he did. I only say that to encourage us that no matter how hard we try to treat people right and to love them, don't be surprised that some people will still complain about you and even lie behind your back about you. Connie and I have always been amazed that some of the people that we have sacrificed and given to the most were often the same people who left the church without even a goodbye and would sometimes even slander us to others. If I were ever going to quit pastoring, it would be because of stuff like that. And so one day, if you get a one call that says, hey guys, please pray for Pastor Bill, he got arrested. He beat so-and-so over the head with a communion plate. You'll know what happened. All I'm saying is if we're going to be like Jesus, part of that inclusion during the complaints and criticisms of others, and yet, and this is the key, serving God and them anyway. Jesus claims polarized those that heard him. On the one hand, some believed him. For example, John the Baptist proclaimed, he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Philip said of him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Meaning the Samaritan village of Sychar believed him, affirming, We know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Even a Gentile royal official believed in him, along with all his household. But we are still faced with the question, who was Jesus of Nazareth? In the very beginning of the passage we just read, we see the people were trying to kill Jesus, were searching for him at the feast. In verse 11 they ask, where is he? 
the passage tells us there was more than just a fundamental kind of search going on for Jesus. Everybody had a theory about who he was. Some said he's a good man. Others said he's a prophet. Others said he's a deceiver of the people. Others will say he's demon-possessed. He's insane. The majority of mankind rejected Jesus' claims, and they still do. John wrote in the prologue of his gospel, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But the people that truly did know him were and are willing to die for that belief. Now, this is totally different from the modern-day Islamic terrorists or others who are willing to die for their beliefs. In what way? These people can only have faith that their beliefs are true, but they are in no position to know for certain. The disciples here, on the other hand, knew for a fact that the resurrection had truly occurred. They had physically seen it, and knowing the truth, they were willing to die for that belief. Now, I'm sure they all had the chance to renounce their belief in Jesus and the resurrection, but instead, outside of the apostle John who was exiled, they chose to be brutally tortured and killed for their faith. There's one thing I know, it is this. Liars make poor martyrs. What I mean is, like the 9-11 terrorists, people are willing to die for what they think is true, even if it's false. But no one dies for what they know is a lie. Now what I'd like to show you this morning is what I'll call the problem of Christ. Sometimes you see on billboards or on bumper stickers that Christ is the answer. However, it's critical first to see that Christ is a problem. The problem of Christ. People have to do all this theorizing about it. They have to do all this searching because he is a problem. If any educated person wanted to make a list of the three people in history of the world who have influenced the most people in the world, or a list of five or a list of ten, it's inevitable that Jesus Christ would have to be on that list. I can tell you, no matter who you put on that list with him, only he will be unique. In what way is Jesus unique? He is the only one who reached that elite list who actually claimed to be God. Recently, I've been noticing there are a lot of, a certain number of historical revisionists who are saying that the Holocaust never happened. The Holocaust, the Nazi plan to exterminate the Jews, is now in doubt, according to some people. This simply astounds me. There are otherwise very intelligent people who now say that the Holocaust never happened. Now, the Holocaust they are talking about happened around 80 years ago. The trouble with this kind of false theory is there are still thousands of people around who were there in the concentration camps. So they're standing up all over the place. They're saying, this isn't true. We were there. 
We saw it. Therefore, this kind of revision of history can't get off the ground. It's going to have to wait at least 50 more years to make sure that all the surviving witnesses are dead. Why would I bring that up this morning? What does that have to do with John chapter 7? Even most secular historians are in agreement that Jesus Christ lived and died. Now, they don't believe in his miracle or his resurrection, but there is just too much documentation to doubt his existence. Bart Ehrman is an atheist New Testament scholar. I know. Those words go together like airline, food, diet, ice cream, and family vacation, don't they? The point is, Ehrman is no friend to Christianity. Well, listen to how he rebukes his fellow atheists who say that Jesus never existed. He writes, This is not even an issue for scholars of antiquity. The reason for thinking Jesus existed is because he is abundantly attested in other early sources. If you want to go where the evidence goes, I think that atheists have done themselves a disservice by jumping on the bandwagon of mythicism because, frankly, it makes you look foolish to the outside world. If that's what you're going to believe, he says, you just look foolish. Now, this is an atheist. Did you know that within 20 years, the first Christian documents were already circulating? Paul was already writing his letters and documents, and they all claimed that Jesus said that he was God, and that he also did great miracles. Now, if those claims were made so close to the time of the event, if they were false, Christianity, like disproving the Holocaust, never could have gotten off of the ground. There simply wasn't enough time lapse there were still too many people alive who had seen it. Therefore, we know there was no questions on anybody's part that Jesus claimed to be God or also that he did miracles. This was not in dispute. Even his enemies agreed to that. That wasn't the problem. The problem is, sure he claimed to be God. Sure he did these great deeds. But who was he to say such things? Who was this guy? That's the problem. There wouldn't have even been a problem if those claims hadn't been there. Now here's the problem. Let me put it this way. How do you account for a man who on the one hand claims to be God and therefore puts himself on the level of a person who claims to be a plaid unicorn and yet, on the other hand, produces teaching of such overwhelming wisdom and possessed a character of such attractive beauty and deeds of such awesome power. How do you account for somebody like that? That's a problem. That was the problem. Because of that problem, everybody had to come up with a theory. As a matter of fact, the fact that he is on this elite list coupled with these incredible claims creates a problem not just for these people, but for you and me because of the magnitude of these claims. Let me give us an example. If you got a registered letter in the mail tomorrow that said, the IRS summoned you for a hearing because you owe $100,000 in back taxes, 
Or if you got a registered letter saying, this is to inform you to report to so-and-so lawyer, you have an inherited $100 million. A registered letter. What would your reaction be? You'd say, this has to be a practical joke, or you'd say, this has to be a mistake, this couldn't be. But I can tell you what you're not going to say or do. Therefore, because this claim is so ridiculous, I'll just throw this letter away in the trash can. I'm not going to call that lawyer. I'm not going to check this out. This is just too preposterous. You can't do that, can you? As preposterous as it is, the magnitude of the claim will make it impossible for you to even get through the day without figuring that out. The magnitude of this claim is here a man who is able to become the centerpiece of the greatest religion in history. He is the person who has influenced more people in the history of the world. It is he who makes these claims of deity. Therefore, no thoughtful person, no one who is honestly looking for the truth, no one who has a well-thought-out view of life cannot af can afford not to take a really solid look at these claims. Anybody who just dismisses the claims of Jesus out of hand without at least considering them is a fool because of the problem of Christ. Now look at the problem here these people are wrestling with. They come up with four theories. He's a good man. He's a deceiver. Later on in verse 20, they will say he's demon-possessed, or he is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. There are four of them. One impossible, two improbable, one, I think, inescapable. Over the next couple sermons, we will take a look at all four theories, because they're the only ones that anybody ever comes up with. What are we to do with these claims? We cannot escape them. As John Stott observes, the claims are there. They do not in themselves constitute evidence of deity. The claims may have indeed been false. But some explanation of them must be found. We cannot any longer regard Jesus as simply a great teacher. If he was so grievously mistaken in one of the chief subjects of his teaching, namely himself. And so I pose the question once again, who is Jesus Christ? I want to help you answer that question in case you've never faced it squarely. I'm speaking not to those, just those in this room, but anyone who may see this video. But I want to begin by talking about the one truly impossible answer. The one truly impossible answer is the answer that was given first by the people of Jerusalem. Look at the first opinion of Jesus. Some people said he is a good man. There was an old Scottish Presbyterian minister nicknamed Rabbi Duncan who lived many years ago. One of his most famous quotes goes like this. Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was a man who was deceived and deluded himself, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma, he says. I love the word trilemma. Did you hear that? The problem of Christ puts us in a trilemma not a dilemma. Three possibilities. He was either deceiving, 
he was deluded or insane himself or he was exactly who he said he was. Well, now somebody says, I thought you just said there were four theories put forward by these people. It's true, but I think Rabbi Duncan is right because one of the theories isn't even a, a possibility. One of them is an impossibility. And we will spend the last few minutes of our time looking at the first theory. Jesus was just a good man. The first theory, I think, is impossible. They said, he's a good man. Now, many give this answer today, but it is the one thing that Jesus most certainly cannot be. Please allow me to explain. This is the impossible option for explaining the problem of Christ. You see at one place there in verse 12, they say he is a good man. Why do we say that that is an impossibility? Why does Rabbi Duncan leave it out of his trilemma? The reason is because of Jesus Christ's outrageous claims, because of what he said about himself. They were absurd if they were not true. They were outlandish. No one else in the history of the world who ever said about things like that about himself has ever been accepted as anything other than a fool. He actually claimed to be God. First of all, he claimed it in the starkest of ways. When we get to the next chapter, we'll see that there is a place where the people wanted to stone him because Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. Now, I am is the divine name for Yahweh. It means I am that I am. The word Yahweh means I am without beginning and I am without end. Jesus took that name upon himself. He took the name of God and everybody was absolutely appalled. They wanted to kill him. They knew what he was claiming. There was a place in the trial where the high priest says, Are you the Christ? Jesus says, You said it. Not only that, at the end of history, I will appear and I'm going to judge all of mankind. He was constantly making shocking statements like that. But not only did he make these dramatic statements, but if you read the Gospels, you will see that Jesus was constantly, in an unassuming way, in a, in a routine way, in a subtle way, continually assuming the most incredible and radical positions. Now, friends, as we finish up this morning, let's be reasonable. No one in the history of the world has ever said such things and has not been dismissed as a crackpot. No one else has ever said things like that. That's the reason you have Rabbi Duncan saying what he says. That's not one of the options. You have men like Winston Churchill. You have great leaders who are always saying, give me your life, but it was always for some cause. Winston Churchill says, you have to make the ultimate sacrifice. Like when he told England, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. What he is saying is, for the sake of your country, and for the sake of justice, and for the sake of your families, follow me. But Jesus is different. Jesus is saying, lose yourself for my sake. The kind of thing he is asking for can never be given to anyone who is just merely human, who is just a good man. Anytime anyone has demanded this kind of allegiance and have gotten it, it has inevitably led to wickedness, 
to cruelty and to tragedy. Anyone else in the history of the world who has ever demanded such, anyone who has ever gotten it like the Jim Jones of the world, anyone who has ever demanded this kind of thing like the Hitlers of the world, anyone who has ever demanded that kind of allegiance, it has inevitably led to tragedy. It has inexorably led to cruelty. But not in Jesus' case. Because of his claims, you cannot say he was just a good man. You cannot say he was a wonderful moral teacher and that's all. He didn't leave us that option. It's gone forever. In the same way C.S. Lewis has famously written, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is a son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left us that option. He did not intend to. We'll come back next week and we'll look at the other options. Was Jesus deluded or demon-possessed? Or was he actually God in the flesh? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you stand alone in history with the claims you have made. You said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not for me is against me. I pray you would open our eyes as to who you truly are as Lord. And for those who don't know you, that the blinders Satan has employed would be shattered, that they could see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. For it is in your matchless name that we ask this. And the church said, Amen. Amen.